Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to your Rattlecast number 193. So glad you could join me. Today's guest is uh, Michael Favala Goldman. He'll be here in about 10 minutes. But before we get, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated affiliated with any other organization we just do it we love poetry and i know we do too so please do click the like button and share make sure you subscribe ring the bell for notifications leave reviews on any of those podcasting catcher platform thingies that would help out a lot because all we want to do is get more people listening and enjoying and understanding and learning and growing in their lives through poetry i have to let you know i'm a little under the weather today i don't know if you could tell in my voice it sounds really weird to me because my head is all full of stuff but maybe i sound normal i have no idea but uh, this is my second brain fog episode. We had one back in, uh, in November last year with a flu, and uh, this is another one. So we'll see if we can make it through the usual hour and uh, t- 15 or 30 minutes or whatever it is. Um, I'm feeling good now. Got the Dayquil, got the throat coat Yogi tea, and uh, a huge look at the size of this, this tea right here. Um, so we should be good. Got a whole pile of cough drops. And we're going to start out like we usually do with uh, the poet respond poet. And we have just a wonderful poem by a wonderful poet. Um, the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald is the poem. And David Kirby is here to talk to us right now. Hey, David, how you doing? Hello, Tim. I'm doing uh, wonderfully. I don't, I'm, I, you know, I don't know how I've done it. I've avoided uh, COVID so far. Having said that, I'm tempting the fates, but uh, uh, better, better, uh, better not to get it, right? Yeah, you, know, you seem to be doing great, though. You seem to be your, your cheerful, normal, articulate self. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. I don't know how long it'll last, but we'll see. The, the gas kind of runs out maybe toward the end of the show. But, um, <laughs> but, but let's talk about this poem because I loved it. It's in your usual style, um, or your you know, most well-known style, we could say. It's one of those braid poems weaving a whole yeah. bunch of things about the truth and reality and Gordon Lightfoot. So tell us how this poem came to be. Well, uh, the uh, you know it's it's like a lot of my poems. Uh, I just began to look at things that interested me and and to kind of uh, you know move them around like pieces on a chessboard and look for some kind of emotional uh, connection that would uh, that would bring them together. And uh, the, the the biggest um, uh, part of it, I thought, was was going to be the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. So I head toward that. But as you know, and as you know, from being familiar with from my poetry in the past, uh, they don't always start out that way. They, they, they head uh, in, in a direction that that the poem tells me, you know, Tim, you've probably noticed that a lot of uh, books these days, almost every book that comes out seems to have a theme. And I was talking to a graduate student uh, yesterday. She just passed her prelims. So Barbara and I had her over for a drink. And uh I said, "What's your what's your uh, dissertation going to be about?" She said, "I don't know." And I said, "Good. That's what I want to hear because my way of doing it is you just write. You know, you write and then you listen to the poem and let the poem tell you what it wants to be. And then you look at fifty or sixty poems and you let them say, okay, we're the ones who volunteer to be the book, and we're the ones who don't care about that. And we're going to step aside. Maybe we'll appear in a book in the future. But it just seems to me that that poetry ought to be driven uh, by the love of language and." Uh, and the, and the love of entertainment and, you know, it's showbiz. It's a kind of a specialized niche, shall we say. But, you know, it's uh, it, it's what you want to do is give pleasure first and let let theme arrive later. And so, you know, I just messing things around and realized what uh, this is really. Um, it's really a poem about about what works and what works is not always the truth. What works is just a good story. Mm-hmm. And and I was wondering if you. um. 
did, did you write the whole poem this week? Or did you have notes on a poem like this so that when Gordon Light, Lightfoot died, he came in as the final piece? Because there's so much research that invo- is involved in these poems. Um, how, what was the process like over the course of the week? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry uh, that Gordon had to die to make this pros- possible, but I... Uh, you know, you, 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 as you're suggesting, I did have a lot of pieces and they were approaching uh, critical mass. And uh, I don't I don't torture myself too much over writing. I, I love to do it. And uh, a lot of people complain about how difficult it is. And others suffer and this and that. I just, you know, nothing makes me happier than sitting down and working on a poem. So, uh, you know, when I heard about it, I said, OK, time to make a extra pot of coffee and get busy. And so it was, you know, it was largely there. But, uh, you know, it, it took the emotional uh, impetus of, of his death to make it, you know, go from critical mass to being actually finished. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a long poem, and I want to hear it all. So why don't you go ahead and read it, if you don't mind? It's a long mother, by which in poetry, it's not the Iliad or the Odyssey, <laughs> but it is close to five minutes. Yeah. The wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Everyone's good in a crisis, says my brother-in-law's wife to my brother-in-law, who seems less than pleased to have this information. He having just said, I'm good in a crisis, in response to her assertion that he's not really good at anything, picking up after himself, taking turns with the kids, cleaning the kitchen after a big meal that she has shopped for and prepared. Bravado, the marvelous, the startling, these aren't as impressive as that which is steady, consistent, reliable. Not Faustus, but Penelope. Jack Gilbert says as much in his poem, The Abnormal is Not Courage, which describes a 1939 Polish cavalry charge against German tanks, their sabers flashing as cannon fire cuts them to pieces. Although the best thing about this story is that it never happened. The cavalry came across lightly armed German infantry and dispersed them, though the Poles themselves were routed when German reinforcements arrived and fired on them with machine guns. The tanks appeared only after the battle was over, as did journalists who saw the tanks and the dead men and the horses and drew the wrong conclusion. Although, in a way, the cavalry charge actually worked, since it halted the German advance long enough for a Polish battalion of foot soldiers to retreat to safety. But isn't the story better the way Jack Gilbert tells it? Who wants to hear about a mistake? If you're going to tell a story, make it a good one. Be patient. When 18-year-old John James Audubon came to America, he found some Eastern Phoebes nesting in a cave, and having heard that they returned to the same spot to nest every year, he decided to test that idea. So for days, he sat in the cave with them and read a book until they were used to him and let him tie string to their legs to identify them, and sure enough, the same birds were back. Don't try too hard, in other words. Human speech is like a cracked kettle on which we beat out Tunes for bears to dance to, says Flaubert, when we long to move the stars to pity. Really? The stars don't need us. Those stars are fine. It's the bears who need dance music. On your feet, Smokey. Here's one you'll like. I wrote it just for you. Besides, every hundredth time we sit down to write a bear song, we write one that leaves the stars shaking with sorrow, their tears raining down in torrents, and then evaporating in the atmosphere before they reach us. Beauty can't be targeted. That was Ezra Pound's mistake, says Brodsky, a surprising one for somebody who lived in Italy for so long. Beauty is a byproduct. Beauty is the stepchild of doing one's job, as when Cyrano de Bergerac 
suffered a neck wound in battle and decided to study astronomy while he recovered, eventually writing a satirical novel about a voyage to the moon, thus influencing future science fiction writers, but also being discovered 350 years later by the Edmund Rostand, who made him famous in a play called Cyrano de Bergerac, in which his love for the beautiful Roxanne is thwarted because Rostand gave him a large and unsightly nose, an assertion as exaggerated as the false Polish cavalry charge, and thus, like that invention, a key element in turning a good story into a great one. Gordon Lightfoot's hit song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, was riddled with so many inaccuracies that the singer-songwriter agonized over his sending the doomed freight to Cleveland, for example, when it was really headed for Zug Island, when it sank on Lake Superior in 1975, and the families of the 29 men who perished in the wreck met to mourn in the Mariner's Church of Detroit, and not in Lightfoot's rephrasing the Maritime Sailors' Cathedral. But his friend and longtime a producer, Larry Waronker, told him not to worry about the facts, to play to his artistic strengths and, quote, just tell a story, end quote. The Poles weren't stupid. At the time of the 1939 cavalry charge, <clears throat> their cavalry was already being organized into motorized brigades. After all, who won the war? Ottomans tying strings under the legs of the Eastern Phoebes is the first known incident of banding birds. Cyrano didn't have a big nose, but Edmund, but Edmund Rostand gave him one. The wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald charted at number one, and long before and before long, shipping regulations were changed to include survival suits, positioning systems, depth finders, increased freeboard, more frequent inspection of vessels. None of this would have happened if Gordon Lightfoot had made sure all his facts were correct and the song had turned out to be a dud. <clears throat> Writing isn't hard. You just have to be patient. You just have to get everything right. That's great. Thanks so much for sharing that, David. Uh, David Kirby with The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald after Gordon Lightfoot, who uh, died this week. And, and let me ask you before you go, do, what do you think about the assertion in that poem? Uh, do you think that... Uh, how much do facts matter in a poem? Uh, is that something that you worry about, getting everything right? You know, I, I wrote a, um, an essay for Lit Hub uh, uh, called uh, on, on Melville um, uh, Mendacity and My Problem with the, with the Truth because uh, I write a lot of, of nonfiction. I, used to, I really started out as a literary scholar and uh, began to write poetry as well. My poetry got a little more notice, so I just kind of put all my, my effort into that. But I actually wrote a book on Melville uh, in which I said he had never been to Italy uh, because I didn't want, I realized I didn't want him to have been to Italy. Uh, and, and then I found out later that, that he was. And that's when I said, okay, uh, I'm going to give most of my time, most of my energy uh, in, into making stuff up because, uh, you know, the, uh, that's, that's, that's another way to teach, you know, as, as Picasso says, art is the lie that that reveals the fiction. So I'm, I'm trying to be a better, better and better liar. And, uh, you know, I don't the, the thing about about reading something in a poem is that uh, I don't think anyone has ever, you know, emailed me and said, oh, what, you know, that was a big whopper. You told that's just not not true at all, because, I mean, do, do you watch um uh, War and do you watch uh, Gone with the Wind to learn Civil War history? I don't think so. 
You know, it's it's you know we know it's a fable, so I'm I'm a, I've become a fabulist, uh, more than a uh, more more than a truth teller, and it's, I don't know. So far, it pays the bills at my house, and it's just a lot more fun. Well, that's great. Well, thanks so much, David. Always a pleasure. Uh, great poem, and uh, thanks for being on today. Thank you. Yep. Take care. It was David Kirby with uh, Sunday's poem. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to uh, today's main guest, Michael Favallo Goldman. So sit tight, and I will be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, Michael Favallo Goldman is a Danish literary translator, educator, and jazz clarinetist. Uh, Goldman's books of original poetry include Who Has Time for This, uh, Slow Phoenix, Small, uh, Small, Sovereign, if you were here, you would feel at home, and this may sound familiar. Uh, his newest book, which is just out not too long ago from a Homestead Lighthouse Press. Um, let's see, among his 17 translated books are Dependency, uh, which was, came out by Penguin Classics uh, by Tove, um, Tove Ditlevson. I hope I said that right. The Water Farm Trilogy uh, by Cecile Bodeker, and Something to Live Up To, Selected Poems of Benny Anderson. Um, and Michael was also the uh, interviewee in our fall translation issue. So check that out for a lot more about Michael Goldman. I think we'll get him to talk about some of the stuff we talked about there because they had some great stories to share. Um, Goldman lives in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he's the um, has been running the Poetry Critique Group since 2018. He also serves as the chair of the program committee for Straw Dogs Writers Guild and is a member of the board of directors for the Northampton Center for the Arts. And here he is, Michael Favala Goldman. Hey, Michael, how are you doing again? Hi Tim, it's great to great to talk to you here. Yeah, it was a lot of fun talking to you. Sort of about your life story in that issue um, of Rattle, and uh, and all the translation work you do. But it's it's interesting too to talk about your own poems a little more in a little more depth. Uh, why don't you start out by reading one of them? Sure. Music. Time is silent. Space is also silent. Who are we to enter? What silence do we have to add? What sound do we have to add that is worthy of silence? Yeah, very interesting poem there with a lot of silence around it. That was music, um, a poem not included in this book. Is that coming out? Um, is that a newer poem? That is a, uh, I think that was in the book before this. Gotcha. Um, and so tell me about that. I love that line, uh, what silence do we have to add? Um, yeah. And how do you think about that in terms of poetry, about a poetry is adding silence? That's a really fascinating way to, to look at it. So I think this poem came out of um, it came out of a book. Uh, the uh, it was the the world of silence. <laughs> Max Picard is like a, a you know two hundred pages on the concept of silence, and where I where I ended up is that you know is you know is silence the ultimate. That's the, is like is that the pure form, mm -hmm. and and what are we doing to it? You know, are are we adding anything? Uh, are we contributing something positive to it? Um, yeah, he talks about having the, a campaign that's called like one square inch of silence. I don't know, maybe you've heard of that. Trying to create pockets 
anywhere in the world where there is no sound of human activity. And they're hard to find because there's, you know, there's all kinds of air traffic and uh, interstate traffic. And um, uh, and so so for me, so how it relates to me and writing and poetry is that I and music for that matter, too, is that I would like to have anything that I create and put into the public sphere to be. Some, something that is worthy of breaking the silence, that there's some kind of uh, return to the reader, to the listener. Um, and um, so that's that's wh wh where the poem comes from for me. And then there's this other thing, right? It's called music, right? But music isn't mentioned in the poem. And yet music is this, uh, you know, this medium that can communicate through silence directly without words. And, and there's something in poetry that also communicates between the words that you can't explain, which is why you need the poem. <laughs> and, and so that is also a kind of music, that thing that can touch our hearts, that can reach into us um, without, with, you know, by, and with diverting our intellect or our strategic mind. Yeah, that's, can you talk a little bit about... Um being a, a, a jazz clarinetist and how that relates to poetry since you're talking about music now um, that was one of the things I wanted to bring up but the is it is it pockets of silence in the same way when you're doing jazz um, and, and is, is the silence there between the notes just as important as the notes themselves would you say you know, you know every, just like we're superimposed on time and space you know everything we say and play is superimposed on silence um, so yeah, the silence is just, is, is just as important and, um, and it's just as hard to communicate through music as it is through poetry, like, you know, to, to be able to, uh, to get into that, that groove where that, where something deeper is coming through and it's not just something you're, you know, it's not something you're inventing consciously, but it, be and especially if you're with a group that there can be a, you know, it's a it's a rare thing. It's really hard to write a great poem. Just just like it's really hard to get into a space where the music is playing itself. But it's such a joy when you get there. So so tell us a little bit about your background. I, the the translation issue started out with a great story about how you ended up speaking Danish. Um, and yeah. so, so how, what was the journey? Can you like sort of chronicle your, your, the way you entered poetry, telling a little bit about that story and then also um, how you got into writing your own poems and how you became a, a jazz uh, player too? <laughs> well, that's a lot. That's, that's a, a lot, lot. But give me, give me like a, like a sweeping overview. Okay. <clears throat> I've always been a word person ever since I was a little kid. I learned how to read before I went to school. I, I, I wrote limericks. For years, as a little as a little boy, for fun, um, when I was thirteen, uh, I got a bar mitzvah present of a blank book and a pen. Oh, interesting! And I immediately wrote a poem in it, and 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 I I kept that book for many years. And I would write when I felt overwhelmed by something, like I had been to a funeral, or I fell in love with a new girl, or we broke up, or what and and so every now and then I would write as just that was my that was a medium. Um 
and uh, um, you know, as, so as a you know as as a teen, I was uh, I was uh, in a I was on a literary magazine in high school. Um, editor in chief of my uh, whatever uh, the school newspaper, right? So so I was writing, but uh, it didn't it wasn't central in my life, mm-hmm. and it wasn't for many 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 years. <laughs> So when I was 17, I'll just touch on that story. I went to, I enrolled in a summer exchange program, ended up in Denmark, kind of randomly. It was a Scandinavian program. They could have sent me anywhere. And I was going to be there for four weeks, staying with the family. <clears throat> and the last week I was there, the, <clears throat> the, the younger sister in the family and I fell madly in love with each other. This was 1983, mm-hmm. before the internet existed. <clears throat> we ended up <clears throat> writing letters to each other every day for a year, saw each other the next summer, wrote each other for another year, saw each other the next summer. <clears throat> Seven years later, we got married. After, so the second time I was in Denmark, which was two years later, I taught myself Danish, working on a farm in Denmark, to impress her father, basically. <clears throat> and um, and I've been reading Danish literature ever since to kind of keep up my language um, chops. And um, yeah, so I became bilingual, uh, basically, when I was 19, with a language that is not super useful uh, <laughs> in the United States. So um, I've had a couple of careers. I was a, a personnel manager for an environmental group for five years. And then I I got into remodeling. And I was a carpenter for uh, 15, 20 years, contractor. And that's that's basically my most recent full-time gig. I, I, I let my license lag last year after not working in the field for the last 10 years. Um, but uh, did a lot of remodeling, bathrooms, kitchens, and whatever. Um, I, dro- I, I dropped out of college after one semester <clears throat> and never went back. Um, and um, as I, Mark Twain says, I didn't let school get in the way of my education. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and about, uh, so, right. Okay, so I'm bilingual in Danish. I'm working full time as a carpenter and I'm reading Danish literature for 25 years until I until I really fall head over heels for a Danish poet, Benny Anderson, who you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I start translating his poems on for fun, really, and also to share them with my friends and family, because I think he's so amazing that they'll, they'll appreciate it. And um uh, I start sending them out by email and soon people are sharing them with their friends and family. And I, I have a list of over a hundred people that I'm sending out translations to each week in, in the evenings or on the weekends when I'm not working. I write to Benny to sh- tell him what I'm doing. And he says, next time you're in Denmark, why don't you come and visit? So he's uh, the national poet in Denmark. He's a big celebrity over there. Uh, the all-time best-selling poet, and I'm just, I'm a carpenter in Western Massachusetts, and I, of course I'm I'm just like yes, of course I, I will, and I'll you'll never forget the moment standing on his doorstep, 
to knock on his door, seeing his door, the plate, the nameplate on the door and realizing that my life might change right now. Yeah. And it did. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting too. I don't think we talked about um, carpentry at all, but, but all the careers you've had tie a lot into poetry. I mean, carpenter, you know, a poet is a maker and, yeah. you know, in, in doing anything like, like that you're making things come into being that wasn't before and there's some sort of joy in that what do you think the common thread is between those three different careers the translator the carpenter and the jazz because it it feels like there's some real strong connection there so one of them is attention to detail and discipline so i was a trim carpenter mostly so i did installed a lot of tile and wood trim uh, also roofs but I and I, you know, I I moved up in the field, and I I would always be sent to the the most difficult jobs with the most difficult um, homeowners <laughs> uh, because I could get into making things right. And playing jazz takes such dedication. You know, I have to play every day, um, and you know, there's just so many possibilities. There's so many ways the music can go. And there's also tuning into my own core and trying to bring that through the structure that exists in the music. And, you know, as you can, and that has some similarity to creating literature, right? Mm -hmm. How do I connect to the um, kind of the, the scaffolding of an emotion or of a, an episode and, and then bring that expression through and, and hang it so that it looks beautiful or sounds beautiful or sounds accurate or sounds right. So I think there is a common thread um, through all this. I hope that made sense. What I, what I just described. No, it definitely does. And I mean, that's what, what poetry is all about really are the details of the sounds of the way words fit together, like tiles or something like that. Um, let's uh, oh, go ahead. What, what do you want to say? Uh, well, I was just going to say something else that is, you know, I, I mentioned being a detailed, you know, carpenter, and of course the, the you know the the intricacies of poetry. There's something that translators talk about called close reading, which is when you're translating a book, it's not the same as reading it, because you're pausing on every single word and thinking about what the different permutations are, because you can't necessarily translate that word directly. Mm -hmm. It has a you know, it may have a, a main meaning, but depending on where it sits in the phrase or depending on the person who's speaking it, it may have a slightly different translation. And so that kind of close reading is not that different than looking at a wall of wood trim or um, or looking at the way uh, chords in a in a tune um, uh, flow together. So there's another connection. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely really interesting. Uh, I want to keep moving with some poems. And in your new book, this, <laughs> this may sound familiar. Um, yeah. You have uh, The Hard Part is Coming Up with a Title, which is a great title for a poem, of course. Do you want to yeah. read that? Sure. And I love titles. <laughs> uh, something I talk about in my workshops about um, I like a title to do more than one thing. Or that by the time you get to the end of the poem, it's, it has a different meaning by the time you return to it and how you find titles and all that. But... Here we go. The hard part is coming up with a title. From there, it's a series of events you can't avoid that insert themselves directly in the subconscious, like a turned away face, a feeling of 
foreboding, a family tiff. All the imprints etched into your soft material, slowly scarring, stiffening into stanzas, lines, and words. Leaning hard up against each knock on your life. A synchronicity, a blessing. Remember the title, if you can still remember. Buoyed by breath and blood, beauty and belonging. Sit under your favorite tree, play with a toy or a friend. Wonder why the sun keeps shining on you, of all things. Don't get carried away and get carried away. You can have both because at the end of the poem, which is really pretty soon, is an opening. Acceptance of the incomprehensibility which borders on love and lunacy and slips us back into life right where we are supposed to be. Yeah, great. That's the hard part is coming up with a title. Again, feel how that title twists around by the end of the poem. An excellent example of that from This May Sound Familiar, Michael Favala Goldman's newest book. Um, so so you mentioned um, that, that close reading uh, when you're translating. How similar is your writing process for your own poems to that? Are you going slowly word by word, or is that more in the, the editing process? Did you do the, the whole, like, first draft, just, you know, pour out everything, and then for a fine later? Or are you going, you know, piece by piece as you write? Yeah, I, I think there's a little bit of that in the poem I just read, that my draft is, like, write what you can't avoid, that they insert themselves directly in your subconscious and then try and hang on and just, you know, kind of let it, you know, get carried away. <laughs> um, and, and don't get, don't get too carried away, but get carried away. So, so yeah, my, my draft process is just like, get it out. And then that close reading is what takes it t- with what comes in at revision. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, one of the analogies that I often use is a poem as a hologram. Um, so a hologram is a is like a photographic plate that when you send the laser through it, uh, it gives an image. And, but if you break off a piece of that plate and send the and send the laser through it again, it will give the entire image, not just a piece, with slightly less clarity. But it'll give the whole thing. Oh, interesting. And so, so I think of a poem that like. Whatever the emotional center is of the poem, whatever the message or the import of the poem is, that every word, every line, every part of that poem needs to attach to that. It needs to be related to that Hmm. so that um, the reader feels held, so that the voice feels authentic and consistent and uh, and the poem can do its job. That's really that interesting. Yeah, that does. I, I never knew. That's one of the things that I've always wondered about is how holograms actually work. So it's uh, it's good. It's interesting to hear that and then can use that as a metaphor for, for poems. Um, sort of the fractal nature of, of poetry, too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I should say, too, Sarah Eddy is here. She says, uh, Michael's work as a carpenter was as exquisite as his poems. He helped in the remodel of my kitchen years ago. And, yeah, Sarah. Uh, yeah, excellent. <laughs> and uh, Dick Westheimer says, trim carpenters are next level. So uh, we've got some people with experience. <laughs> 
nice to hear. It's good to hear. Um, so, so how do, how much of that do you apply to your translations? Because if you're if you're thinking of poems that way, that might not be the way that the author that you're translating is thinking of poems. So, does do you? How much of that is? How much of you uh, of yourself are you allowed to add into the poem in the process of making it? Because we um, we might have talked about this during the the interview, but um, Art Beck, who we had a series on translation in Rattle Online, um, he called it the impertinent duet. Because we're sort of dancing and with someone that maybe doesn't want to dance with us, and um, yeah. and and that's the the process of translation. So how much do you how much leeway do you give yourself for um, mm-hmm. for adding concepts like that into poems as you're translating? Yeah. So um, generally, you know, very very minuscule. Um, my uh, Ulgangspunkt. So my jumping off point. <laughs> Sometimes the Danish word comes out first, but. <laughs> My jumping off point or my, uh, you know, my, my basis as a translator is to hone in on, or tune in on the voice of the original, um, the original author or the voice of the original uh, text and to get there like an actor taking on a role in a play and, and to uh, try and stay in that register, stay in that voice um, and uh, and follow its lead so that my, you know anything that I want to do becomes secondary really that I, I kind of disappear. That's what I wanted. I want to disappear uh, so that the reader has as much as as they can will have a similar experience as the Danish reader did when they read the Danish original. Mm-hmm. So I don't I, so I tend to not play around and experiment with um, uh, any kind of, other uh, uh, imposed theory or even what I want, <laughs> but really continue to return to what does this text want? What does this, uh, what does this poem want so that it can resonate with itself, so it can agree with itself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is it, is it hard to shift hats between uh, the translator and the poet? Do you find yourself, um, you know, is it, is it difficult to, to come up with your own writing um, after being in that mode so often through 25, I think it is, books? Yeah. Um, I, I, so I feel like it's really similar and that, and that I get just as much joy, I think, from both of them. That sense of being, it's like being in the, you know, like the Zen space, you know, where I'm so tuned in to the piece, whether it's, whether it's the the Danish or it's my own writing, I'm so inside of it that like time becomes irrelevant, space becomes irrelevant. I forget, you know, there's something you know, there's something going on in the other room or whatever. Um, uh, so um, it's a place I love to return to. What you know, whether it's translating or whether it's writing or revising or editing, um, and even even leading workshops i mean like it's kind of it's like getting into that and i think that's another thing that uh relates to music and carpentry too mm-hmm. is that when i'm working when, you know when i'm working in a in a um in a room right everything is forgotten except this right here at arm's length in front of me and when i'm playing on a tune that's all i can hear that's all i can see is the is the music my bandmates and what's happening with, you know, with my fingers and my breath Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always wonder about that because it's so interesting. You know, we want to we talk about losing ourselves when we're creating art uh, so often, and and you know, and so many other activities when we play sports, we do that. Um, yeah. And and music is the same way. 
it seems like there's something that's interesting that's different between poetry and music to me. And that music is a, you're getting lost in sort of a collective, you know, because if you're in a band, you know, someone else is setting the beat and there's an audience that's sort of providing the energy and sort of everyone's on the same wavelength. And there's this way that your sort of self dissolves into the collective around everybody. And then, and then when you're reading a poem, it's like the, it's like in the opposite direction, but you're still losing yourself because you're losing yourself in like the music of one voice. So it's almost like, you know, like, like merging with a galaxy versus merging with a black hole or something. Um, you know, that kind of singularity, that, that experience where you're just, you become someone else, but it's, it's, it's someone else in particular. Do you find that a difference between the experience of poetry and the experience of music? Because there's, there is this way that, and also too, I think about like extroversion, introversion when it comes to this, because there's a way that that fuels, the collective fuels energy, uh, like slam poetry too, um, it, it feels like sort of a religious revival type thing where the, the preacher's up there and the whole congregation is like going along and everyone has sort of one voice and one emotion. And that seems like the music side, the extroverted side, the galactic side. And then the, the page poetry is like the opposite. Do you, do you find that too? Or do you feel like it's all the same? Losing yourself is losing yourself. I, I feel a, uh, a strong similarity of being in the flow, whether it's, whether it's with interaction or not, I, I, I got, I got, I feel like it's the same material and, and it's really beautiful when it can be collective. I mean, those are like some of the unforgettable experiences mm-hmm. um, uh, and you know, whether it's in, in music or in a, in a poetry group, I mean, you can, you can get there um, and you can, all, and you can also get there by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. We have uh, a couple questions already, and so I should say, if anybody else has questions, please uh, feel free to leave them in the comments. A lot of people have read the interview with you already in Rattle, okay. of course, who are listeners here. Some, they might have stuff they've already thought about. And um, there's two here we'll pass along, then we'll do another poem. But, um, but Dick Westheimer asks about translation. He says, in translating, how do you take the music of the poem into account when translating? Will you sacrifice mm-hmm. the right word for the right sound? Which I guess is maybe the, the ultimate translator's dilemma. Yeah, so my... You know, so there's a, uh, you know, f- famous, you know, there's, there's a, you know, poetry is what is lost in translation. I think it was Robert Frost maybe said that. Um, and, and so, yeah, there are, um, at, at times you have to let things go. And yet on the next line, you might gain something that wasn't there. Hmm. So, it, so what I find in translation is that it's not just what's lost, but also what's gained. That um, in, in translating a piece, yeah, I might have to um, not be able to fully explain a certain cultural context, or I might lose a, a you know I might lose a part of the original music, but I might find another music, and I might find another meaning that is really that is related to something that happened in the poem that is unexpected. So, um, uh, yeah, so um, you make compromises and you also discover treasures. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 all, it's all good. Yeah, a, a similar uh, question, a good follow-up maybe from Monica Dobo. She says, uh, Michael, how do you go about translating um, untranslatable concepts, like duende is the example? But if there's no English translation, you mentioned that, that – um, a word that came out in, in Danish, which um, doesn't have an English word, but you had, a, had to use a phrase. Um, how do you, what do you do when there's things that, that ha- are so far removed, so p- much part of the culture that you can't mm-hmm. really translate them? 
Mm-hmm. Can't, you know, it's like, <laughs> I'm not sure that can't exists. Mm-hmm. Um, that that there's, all, there's always a way to approach it. Uh, where you can get a taste, you can you can you can um, communicate a taste to the to the reader in your language. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that can't exists. Yeah. Um, uh, well, let's keep up with uh, with poems. Um, what do you want to read next? Difficult, difficult, definitely exists. Difficult exists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like like you know, like humor and and certain you know, cultural contexts and and yeah expressions. Um, but there are ways to approach it mm-hmm. that that can give the flavor. Yeah, is that the joy of translating too? Uh, it, it, like having those difficult moments where you have to make this decision. It's like you know, the the, the fork in the road, and and you're gonna keep pushing on with one version or the other. Uh, is that the fun of it? Is that sort of hacking your I way love, through the wilderness? I love puzzles. I love I, I, crossword puzzles, jigsaw puzzles, and so a translation can be this like you know where you know how do the pieces fit. How do I find the right pieces? Sometimes it's you know putting it aside and sleeping on it for a few days. It's just like just like with a poem, you know, it can it can take a while before it falls into place, especially when you get these really sticky, you know, gets really sticky parts. But you can, but I, I don't know. I feel like you can always you can always find something satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, it's one of the great things too that there's so many different translations of a lot of uh, a lot of pieces. You can see different people's uh, interpretations and takes on things. Um, but let's let's do read the next poem. Um, in this may sound familiar. I think we have just this up next. Um, uh, okay, we can do that one. So I should maybe I should say this may sound familiar to me. It, it is the title of one of the poems, but where that title, what that title means to me in the context of this book, is relationship. That we're all in relationship <laughs> with uh with each other from afar with nature with our uh the people that we're intimate with in our lives um with our past i mean there's just we are re- we are embodied relationships and um and there there's quite a few poems about relationship and this may sound familiar what i'm getting at is that we have a lot in common about how relationships are joyful and difficult and excruciating and short and long and everything they're just the turbulent you know they're just the stuff that life is made of and so i hope that when i read some of these that you know that they, people will feel some commonality mm-hmm. yeah so that's where that where that comes from uh, so here's a poem of family heritage just this My grandfather did not fight in World War II as he worked developing radar for the Navy until he came home different one day and was taken away for shock treatments and lithium. My father did not fight in Vietnam as he was a young scholar with a family until he left home one day without explanation, exiled himself from doing harm. I did not fight in the covert and distant wars 
of my day as I fumbled at fathering. But I did stay. I grew along with my sons and broke the cycle. That was something. And that's uh, just this, again, from This May Sound Familiar, and it kind of does sound familiar, I have to say, just this. Um, so your poems have a, a, a sort of a delicacy and a simplicity to them. Um, you know, the, the, the way you read, too, presents them well that way, you know, line by line, sort of stanza by stanza, letting the, the space that you mentioned before between, um, as you would, notes in a, in a piece of music, uh, the space between them matters. Um, and, and there's sort of a... a, a there's a brevity to it. Um, is that something that you, how do you go about, um, you know, approaching a poem like that? Do you, do you, is that something you do intentionally? Is that something that you're um, drawn toward? Or is that something that you, is the style you feel at home, most at home in? How do you, how did you develop that style is what I'm asking. It's a great question. You know, I, I do have words that I do have poems that are wordy <laughs> and I have poems that are not. So it's not all one or the other. Um, my first book was called Who Has Time for This? <laughs> and and I mentioned before, like, I don't want to waste a second of my reader's time. And so when I'm looking at a poem, when I'm working on a poem, um, I want to chisel away and chisel away anything that could be redundant, anything that could be not necessary, and let the reader fill in the rest. Let the reader meet me there. Um, so I, uh, yeah, so it, it is something that I, um, that I practice. It's something that I treasure and I feel like it's more the poem telling me it's what it's, it, it's what it wants. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you got that style? Um, was it influenced at all by the Danish poets that you translate? Um, yes, it was, <laughs> um, not by Benny Anderson. Um, and probably not by Mayene Kaluta Henson. Those were two of the first poems I poets I published. But Knud Sørensen, who was the third poet I published, and also Tove Ditlersen, who you published recently, um, write a very uh, tight, terse, um, you know, stripped down language. You know, nothing extraneous. And um, and I love that. I, I do. I do love that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Gail Hebman, who uh, is here and introduces a word restraint, which I should have thought of. If I wasn't <laughs> in the in the brain flog of the of the day quill. But um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're poems with with a great deal of restraint, and your reading has a great deal of restraint too. Um, is that how do you? Um, is that something that you you worked on to to get? Because you know, poets always wonder how we should read our poems. There's a sort of uh, there's a feeling people have um, of um, sort of a shyness to, to reading poems in the first place. And, and I'm wondering if music helped with that. And, and how did you develop your reading style? So one of the ways I developed my reading style was by watching other people read badly or what I thought was badly. Mm -hmm. um, so many, I've seen a lot of poets read too fast or too quiet to do justice to what could be really good poems. And also when I was a personnel manager, I got instruction in public speaking. <laughs> and somehow, you know, as a carpenter, 
we carpenters don't really talk <laughs> much. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, F, but when I started getting into literature and realizing that, oh, I have a book out, I guess I need to do a book launch. Uh, I guess I need to read from my book. Some of those tips started to come back to me, how to project to an audience and also how to respect the audience mm -hmm. and how to respect the work. I feel like that's what my reading is about. I want to respect the audience by reading at a pace that they can really take it in. Yeah. And also while I'm reading, I'm really working hard to be in the poem, to see and feel every line of the poem, like when I wrote it. Um, it's not an act. Like I am in the poem and I'm seeing it and I'm feeling it. And it takes time mm -hmm. to be able to, to move at the poem's pace. So it's almost like revising a poem. Like I want to revise the poem the way it wants. And I want to read the poem the way it wants me to read it. No, that's a really interesting way to put it. Did it, did it take you time to develop the, the, um, the, the freedom to give the poem its worth? Cause there is this, this, this hesitancy that we tend to have, um, of, of, you know, cause you're saying, you know, my words are important, my important enough to break the silence. Like we talked about at the beginning. Right. And so a lot of people are hesitant <laughs> to, um, to, uh -huh. to put that forth and, and share that because they're afraid of, of it not living up to, to what they think it does. Did you ever have any trouble getting through that, that phase? Well, I mean, I'm always nervous before an event. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that just comes with the territory. And so I practice and I practice, like record myself reading it. Um, but I also, like I, I tell my, my poets in my workshops, like um, you know, poetry is an oral tradition. I know a lot of people think of it as a written tradition, but it's, it's also an oral tradition. And that when we read our poems, we're not poets anymore. We're orators. Hmm. And, um, and all, even though it makes, it might make you anxious. Uh, it's like, it's another way of serving your poet identity by getting out in public and serving it up. Um, and that, there's, I feel like that bravery to do that is a muscle. And that uh, as you keep working it, you'll realize that even though you feel anxious, you have what it takes to do it. You can still do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, great advice, definitely. Um, let's hear, we, we keep talking, we've got to get to more poems. Let, let's uh, read another one. What do you want to do next? Yeah, let's do, um, we could do these two poems if you want, these two relationship poems, At Home with the Family and How I End Up on the Couch. Sure, sounds great. <clears throat> so this next poem was written as a kind of apology to my wife of 33 years. We just had our 33rd anniversary. At Home with the Family. We're in the dining alcove with its grids of bright window panes. And the boys are still sitting as we ferry plates and pots back to the kitchen. And you see beneath the surface that some of our plates are full. Though obviously they're empty, and I say as much, laughing, not in a kind way as I pick up a heavy pot. 
Of course, the boys see this. And you feel the plates bending, turning liquid, losing their contents, blending with the glare from the outside light, while I am so damned defined as the, ditch the dishes get stacked orderly by the sink. You wipe the table and the kids start fighting. I'll do the washing up. You can deal with them. That was uh, At Home with the Family from uh, This May Sound Familiar. And uh, you wanted to do uh, How I End Up on the Couch, too. Sure. <clears throat> how I End Up on the Couch. One. We sit down to process feelings. Two, I tell you about my sadness. I'm grieving losing you, though you're right here. Three, you are not only grieving, you're angry. Four, you point out as precisely as possible how I misunderstand Five, I don't understand. That is how I end up on the couch from uh, This May Sound Familiar. And, you know, not many people um, can say that they met um, their partner at age 17, speaking a different language, and then stayed together for as long as you have. Um, what was it in, that, that let you knew that that was the, the right person, this was the, the real thing that, that you had to, you know, go back across continents and learn another language for? What was the secret to that? Wow. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I guess I can, you know, I can relate back to what we talked about earlier, you know, feeling that sense of flow and oneness of that rare moment when you're in the music and, and the music is playing itself, or you just move that line into place and suddenly the poem is like blooming, you know, on the page in front of your eyes, right? So there, there is that kind of comfort and synchronicity at my core when I feel it resonating with Yetta's core. And at the same time, there's so much work there's so much discipline. There's so much persistence. There's there's so much that goes into just creating the next day. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Have you ever thought about writing some kind of you know prose memoir? Because your life is taking you all over the place, and uh, <laughs> and a really interesting uh, you know such a good talent stack of different things Thank you've you. done. It'd be an interesting uh, to hear Thank all these you. stories play themselves out. It's it's a it's it's a lot. So uh, another person challenged me to write the story of how my wife and I met in in prose. Mm -hmm. And I had a break in work. I'm I'm insanely busy right now, but I had a break. I think it was in the fall. I I think it ended up doing about twelve pages, just just how we met. Um, and we wrote letters for seven years. I have hundreds and hundreds of letters that are from our relationship from the from that time until we got married and 
I have this idea that someday I've written, I've read through all those letters. I had a second time. Mm -hmm. I the idea that someday maybe I'll go through them a third time and write that story that you just mentioned. I don't know when I'm going to do that, <laughs> uh, but it's possible. Yeah. Well, it definitely be fascinating, uh, but let's hear, we have a lot of poems. Let's do another, another poem. Yeah. Um, let's see. The next poem on my list is keeping up another family poem. Sure. Let me know when you're ready. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> Keeping up. Hair sticking up. Acting tough for a four-year-old. You know what you want, or at least you act like it. You want to be in charge, or at least it sounds like it. Let's go down to the stream and look for frogs. And something in me sighs because I've never in my life looked for frogs or wanted to. And now isn't really the best time. You can see that already on my face. I need to think of something fast or abandon my strategy and give the morning to you. You're so confident and I don't know how to be a father. But I do have something to contribute. Two little packages of fruit leather in case we need them. We walk the five minutes down toward the stream, picking up leaves, acorns, whatever debris catches our eye along the way, including a long walking and poking stick each. And I feel history repeating itself. My father with his father trying to keep up with the man's long strides. And I slow down to your pace. The destination no longer important, doesn't know we're coming, isn't expecting us. We can't be late, even if we never get there. Thoughts you would never have because you were crouched down looking at ants. Yeah, great ending there. I love that. That was keeping up again from uh, this may sound familiar by Michael Favala Goldman. We haven't talked much about your um your your work in workshops and, and teaching poetry and critiquing poetry. Yeah. Um, what do you? Uh, how long have you been doing that? And what, what is there? Certain things that you sort of tend to to lean on. Certain advice you tend to give. Uh, what have you learned over the process of doing those workshops? Okay, that's a lot. Um, so. I never went to school for poetry, as you know. As I mentioned, I was a carpenter. Um, I did go to a couple workshops, and and found that they were helpful, but I they also left me with a kind of, I let me feeling unsatisfied. And um, and I thought that maybe I could create something that was better. Uh, I went to a workshop that felt very superficial, that nobody ever got any real good advice. I went to another workshop that felt very academic. The person who was in charge had talked and talked and talked. And I went to another workshop where it felt very, very patriarchal that the workshop leader was in charge and kind of told everybody what the poem should, should look like. And I wanted to create something that was more collaborative and more, had more of a community feel that I wasn't the expert. I'm the facilitator and people can share and come together uh, around um, 
the I around how they see the poem becoming its best self. Mm -hmm. uh, what the poem has to offer, what its truths are, what its emotional center is, and also any places that could be redundant or confusing or um, could be pared away, right? The um, the the thing that I that I that I talk about the most probably is the emotional center of the poem. Like I mentioned before, that 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 holographic image that everything relates to. Um, but it's also this sense of community that is so beautiful that I love so much and why I keep doing this. I've been running these workshops twice a month for five years, so well over 100 of them. And now I'm teaching in person, too, at our art center um, again after um, after uh, the last few years. I have a poem that I, I'd like to share that describes this process a little bit. Yeah, that'd be great. It's called The Moment in the Virtual Poetry Group. Do you have that? Uh, is it in the book or is it on the... It's a, It was the, one of the others. That gotcha. Yeah, I'll, I'll pull it up. I hope this will give a taste for um, what I'm describing. Um, actually, I'm not. Let's see. The moment in the virtual poetry group. What I'm no, do you not have that? I don't think I do. The moment I have oh. smile. Oh. And I have. Um, is it? Oh, a poetry. I think there's just no title there. Oh, what's the title is uh, is off on the thing. Okay, so the t the title is just on the previous page. That's why it got cut off when I when I did it. Word does that sometimes. It does. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. We have the poem now. Thanks a lot. The moment in the virtual poetry group when I am no longer in control. A poet has shared a new poem and another poet is responding to the poet and to the poem, offering a couple of suggestions, which my left brain is barely registering because my right brain is perceiving it all as love, pervading the 5G the Wi-Fi, the inside of my clothing, and the hair on the back of my neck. I am observing as the next poet offers a couple of completely different comments in exactly the same emotional vein. And it's obvious we have struck it rich. Everyone on this video call is no longer a face in a square or a poet seeking. We have solved the challenges of form and content. Yeah, and that was another poem. That was uh, the moment in the virtual poetry group when I am no longer in control. Um, that makes me think about, I've always wanted... Um, I've always felt like there's too much emphasis on on you know publishing and 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 moving forward as like a career in poetry, and I always think mm -hmm. about the way that that poetry is done in Japan with the kukai, and the the way that haiku are passed around and just groups of people go you know once a month to meet in haiku circles and they share poems about their experiences with life, 
have you found a way to to get rid of that emphasis on you know making these poems as good as possible so we can publish them in a journal and 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 that uh-huh. sort of emphasis because I really there's a way that we really we overemphasize that and we really don't do enough about just how much writing a poem improves your life are you have you found a way to get through that that difficulty hmm. So yes, and yes, I mean, like what you're saying is absolutely it, right? Um, so there is um, there is a great, you know, is, there is great validation to get poems published, and to help you as your as to identify as an artist, to identify as a creator. Um, so I totally uh, see that, and also promote it. And at the same time, uh, there's a quote uh, from a book that I'm translating right now um, from a Danish author who writes. Art is research, not production. Hmm. Art is research, not production. And when I'm writing, (laughs) you're like, I'm doing research on myself. I'm doing research on life and how it intersects with me. And um, to see if I can learn something new, to see if I can be something other than what I am today. That poetry is a tool in service to me that I can use to become whatever that is, right? The, the, the future me. Um, so, uh, so it's both. It is, it is both. Uh, it's great to get the validation to make me, and also the great, also also great to be, uh, to share a poem, whether it's in a community or in a journal, to be part of the conversation, to add to the conversation, mm-hmm. right? Um, that someone else could potentially benefit from to love and learn from and become something else themselves. And that is you know, translating poems. I mean, that's p- part of, I got into translating because I found them so inspiring and enriching that I still remember poems, like I, a couple that I sent you, because I refer to them to remember, oh yeah, I'm like this, I do this. Mm-hmm. And that, that ability that the poem offers that self-reflection and, and growth, self-awareness. Yeah. yeah, yeah, actually, really well said. I love that quote too. Um, it's definitely you know the process is what matters so much more than than the product. And you think of poems as products, and thinking of uh, literary magazines as like notches on a bedpost is something that always bugs me. Um, well, we're running up on time. Do you want to do one last poem? Sure. Let's do the lilacs, which is a translation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh. It's a couple of pages. I hope that's okay. Yeah, that's totally uh, fine. Mm-hmm. Lilacs are blooming right now in Massachusetts. Uh, and this is from Mayena Kaluta Henson, um, a poet who, a Danish poet who died kind of young. She suffered from manic depression, only wrote a few books, was never famous in Denmark, but is an absolute brilliant poet, especially by the way she uses irony. Is that the uh, poet? Is that the poet that you talked about in the interview in the issue? Who uh, you, at her bedside? You know, she, she was, gave, yeah. She, she gave me permission to um, to translate her poems from her deathbed. Mm-hmm. It was the last the last thing she said. Yeah. Yeah. So if anybody wants to hear that story, uh, find the issue of Rattle. But let's hear uh, one of her poems. I'm I'm really excited to hear it. So uh, this poem taught me. You know, it, it it was like even coming today to this interview. I'm reminded of feeling anxious and being so thankful and grateful. And this poem is what is what I return to when I got a big event coming up. The Lilacs. 
I know of nothing worse than when the lilacs are blooming. All year, I look forward to it. And if it weren't for the thought of how beautiful the world can be when the lilacs are in flower, I would not make it through the winter's sad darkness and cold. I love lilacs. To me, they are some of the most beautiful things in the world. But as soon as they start to bloom, I suddenly feel afraid. Now the time is coming that I've been looking forward to for so many months. And how am I going to enjoy it? Will I be able to get enough out of that beautiful but all too short period when the lilacs are in bloom? I never feel I'm ready. If only they would give me another week. But nature must follow its laws. And the buds open like popcorn, whether I'm ready or not. As long as the lilacs are in bloom, I play hooky from work, decline all invitations, barricade myself inside my home with lots of red wine and canned goods and blackout curtains. Don't willingly go outside unless it is absolutely unavoidable. And then, preferably, only after darkness sets with bowed head and visor and blinders, dark glasses and wide-brimmed hat in order not to be confronted with the lilacs shameless putting themselves on display. To avoid inhaling the scent, I hold my breath. Breathe only when I know there's no danger, for example, by trash cans, stinking sewers, and fresh dog poop. Eventually, when I get the feeling it's about over, I carefully leer towards where the lilacs are hanging, and my heart leaps with joy when they are finished, burnt out, brown and limp. Now I can breathe again, stand up straight and lift my gaze, report healthy to work, open my dark curtains and start getting together with people again. But next year, I will enjoy the lilacs, come out to meet them, and be prepared so they don't take me by surprise again. I'm not going to let them terrorize me. I love lilacs. To me, they're some of the most beautiful things in the world. And I'm already beginning to look forward to the next time they bloom. Oh, beautiful poem. That was uh, Marianne Kaluta Hansen. Uh, once again, a translation by... Uh, Michael Favala Goldman of the Lilacs. Yeah, great. That was just a great poem. Thanks so much. A wonderful way to end it, Michael. Just a pleasure talking to you, as it always is. I'm, I'm glad you could be a guest today. It's been it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk about translation and making poetry and art and the community. So. Yeah, well, it definitely always is. Uh, thanks again, Michael. That was Michael Favala Goldman. You can find his book and all of his other work at his website, michaelfavalagoldman.com. Um, spelled like it's shown on the screen. Michael Favala is F-A-V-A-L-A. Goldman is goldman.com is his website. Do find all of his work. There's so much work in translation, so much of his own poetry books, um, so much to share and learn from Michael uh, Goldman. Now, we're going to take a quick break and go to the open lines. And let me put up how the open lines work. First of all, email your poem to open mic. That's openmic at rattle.com. 
Um, and then find the Zoom link. I'm going to put the Zoom link into the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. Only jump over if you want to share a poem. But if you want to share a poem, email it to me so I can show it on screen. We can read along and, um, and then go over the Zoom. If you just want to listen and enjoy everybody else's poems, sit right where you are. It'll keep streaming on Facebook and YouTube so you don't have to go anywhere. But we do love an open mic and especially new, uh, new voices, new people who might be watching. So do join us at the Zoom link. I have to take a quick break, and I will be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, like I said, this is the open lines. You can share whatever you'd like. You can share uh, poems about current events. You can share poems you published recently. You can share, um, uh, um, I don't know, anything you want, anything you wrote today, anything you, you had published. Uh, you can share a prop poem. And the prop for last week was based on that wonderful book that we read, the um, um, New Voices Anthology, uh, where a whole bunch of guests came on sharing poems written, confronting pictures from the Holocaust. It was a wonderful book. And in the kind of spirit of that ekphrastic look at the past, we had uh, maybe not as heavy topics you don't have to do, but the prompt for this week was to um, find a photograph at least 100 years old that includes a person. Write a poem as a letter to that person. That was the prompt for this week. My uh, my photo, I just went to um, my hometown, the Rochester, New York. The Democrat and Chronicle is the Rochester newspaper. I just Googled uh, historical photos in the Democrat and Chronicle at a random year. The year was 2000, or no, not 2000, 1916. And uh, the first image that came up was this photograph from uh, the North Street Florist. Um, and uh, it just said nothing else, just uh, the North Street Florist. For those just listening... There's sort of uh, three people or f- five people in a room looking at the photographer with a with a with a table full of flowers, and that is my uh, my poem for this week. And here are the, the the photo I chose, and here is the poem which I think I'm going to work on a little more. But uh, here we go. This is uh, at the florists on North Street, 1916. All four men in the frame fix their gaze on the camera. But you, I only the irises, the buckets of baby breath grown in a greenhouse on Goodman. The Great War is growing too, but your arms are crossed, so lost in the arrangement you don't notice the flash of the flash bulb. Um, the poses, I think that's a typo. The poses of those men behind the counter, their photo for the fa- for the paper, but why? Something was blooming that day, but what? The archival tag says only the where and the year, and if you had something to say, I can't hear. As my little poem at the florists on North Street. Uh, but let's see what you did, and if we have photographs to share, that's always a lot of fun. Let's go. Um, let's go to Mike Bales first. Uh, we ha- we usually do Mike toward later on, but he's he popped up pretty quick. Hey, Mike, how you doing tonight? Pretty good. I'm a middle guy usually. This fine. Um, I spoke to a quarry actually. I didn't hear about the person. Uh-huh. Um, thank heavens for the special collections section at the main branch of the Davenport Public Library. One time. I was thinking of what to write, and I do some of my writing at libraries for a different setting, and I was sitting right below a black-and-white photo that was taken in 1917, mm-hmm. and it was of a quarry that is that used to be downtown. Um, the area has a history. It was a quarry. I don't know where else it was. It was also once a machine tool uh, place. My dad, when he sold machine tools, probably even sold something to him. Now it's a YMCA, mm-hmm. so it's it's changed. And 
Oh, it was 1917, the photo. Yeah, very cool. So, yeah, interesting. Look look back at the past. Let's hear it. So this is to the Davenport Quarry. You rose from dirt and ashes to make bricks and tiles and create a new world. You were born of inspiration, but mostly sweat of stout young men who came to you for the, for the lives they sought. In your time, you lay still at at the feet of the hill. As your face was carved from the land, the mighty Mississippi flowing in nearby shores spoke to you. A mound of dirt towered over the edge, near the edge of a city street, and passengers in slow-moving cars witnessed your unrelenting work. A waitress in a diner served a cup of joe and talked about a moment of glory when a war overseas was won. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, I looked back 100 years ago. Similar to my thoughts about that, that poem, uh, that, that photograph. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Mike. Very cool to think about okay. the history that goes by and, and all the places we're, we're in. Special collections might like it, with all the history stuff they do. Yeah, they yeah, do for down sure. There. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Okay, thanks. Okay, next up, let's go to uh, Emily DeFerrari. Hey, yeah. Hey, Emily. Am I- yeah, you're Am- here. How are you doing tonight? <laughs> this is the first time I think I've successfully gotten on the Zoom. Excellent. Well, uh, really, I think I've seen you before. You, I think you have. Maybe a long time ago, maybe. maybe. A while ago. Yeah, so what do you have to share for with us? Uh, this is apropos to nothing except it's all I've been writing about lately, so mm-hmm. it's not a prompt or anything. Mm-hmm. Nothing that's going on in the world. Yeah, okay, well, let's hear it. These onions don't make me cry. That's the title. I wash and tear dark and curly kale from its long and woody stems, my back to the onions sputtering in the cast iron, me in the narrow space between her buttercup yellow formica counter and her small olive green stove, knowing this is the last meal I will build in this kitchen to feed the tribe gathering tonight, to remember but not eulogize before we walk away. I mound the separated leaves, cup them in my hands, and in the small space, pivot like the earth on its axis and press them and their wetness onto the hot onions whose browning edges hiss and steam in anger and disapproval. Oh, excellent. Yeah, great metaphor there and and great ending, too. I really like that, those last lines. uh... The anger and disapproval. Thanks for sharing that, Emily. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, definitely a pleasure. Um, next, let's go to um, Lynette, who might be a first-time caller. Yes. Hey, Lynette. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And where are you calling from? Um, I'm, I'm in Portland, Oregon right now. Oh, excellent. And so uh, what do you have? You have a, it looks like a prop poem. Yes, I, I did it for uh, responding to photo. Uh-huh. So at the top of the document is the photo. And And, and what made you choose uh what made you choose this one? Well, because Michael and I worked on this book about, you know, tra- I was translating ah. mm-hmm. Adele Zamudio's uh Selected Poetry and Prose and Michael edited the book. Oh, very cool. Yeah, and we both attended the pen 
Literary Awards Ceremony in New York City because it was a finalist for the award for Poetry and Translation. Yay! Oh, yeah, congratulations. That's wonderful. Yeah. It's a beautiful book, too. I love that cover. Thanks. Yeah, I did the art. Thanks. Oh, you did? Wow. That's really cool. Thank you. So, uh, uh, yeah, so the, the photo is a photo of Adela um, here in, from yeah. 1914. Uh-huh. It's from the... Um, the inside cover of her 1914 book, Rafagas, um, is where that illustration comes from, portrait of her. Hmm. And so I wrote her a letter today. Adela Zamudio, I fell in love with you in the park that bears your name in La Paz, Bolivia. There, your bust anchors the center. Benches face you like radiating circles of your influence through generations, languages, cultures. Your birthday is a national holiday in Bolivia. Artist Judy Chicago inscribed your name on a tile in The Dinner Party. Publishers Weekly Book Life Editor's Pick compares you to Nobel laureate Gabriela Mistral. Translating your wise words, the the fire of your ideas and poet's heart's blood course through my being. Oh, that's very cool, Lynette. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And since you have the book there, do you want to read one of the poems from the book? Oh, of course. I'd love to. And so I'll choose Poet. Poeta. Okay. Yeah, it's bilingual. Spanish, English, mm -hmm. the Spanish on this side and the English on this side. Okay, great. Okay, poet. In labor's noisy fiesta on the grandiose stage of our century, in the midst of the chaos called struggle for survival, an exotic character appears, a stranger to the businesses of the world, humble and haughty in bearing, and on its forehead, the stamp of greatness. Undaunted by the laughter of the fool and the vanity of rich men's excess, it crosses the threshold of salons, for the first time perhaps, flaunting its own manners as the sign of unrecognized nobility. Who is it? It's the very same one in rags, who walk the sands of Greek isles, whose divine songs, the fragments of a brilliant epic flung into the wind of ages, are the legacy of genius. It is the same one, a pilgrim on the plains of Gaul, pilgrim who, on stormy nights, tired and trembling with cold, knocked on the door of the paternal home and was invited in with kind concern, and after a hearty meal entranced the hosts with ballads, legends. It is the same one who next to the grill gate in front of feudal castle walls plucked hidden beauty from the vibrant and melancholy lute, challenging despot's fury. The, the disinherited of destiny 
who in a wandering and singular path go collecting laurels, always the same through the centuries and ages. Instead of the lute and lyre, wherever she goes, she carries with her an album, her treasure. More valuable than all the treasures of the earth, there is a mysterious fire in her chest, the fire of the idea. The idea, sublimated feeling that in the brain, reason condenses. And in the clear stream of the word sprouts, filling lofty pages, furthermore, for that sacrosanct flame in her powerful heart to ignite, it is necessary that she must dive into life's most bitter dregs to know horrid misfortune and rugged paths, hurt by life's cliffs and thistles, wounded by the shocks of life. That is inspiration. Oh. Mysterious flower that only exhales its divine essence after the terrible shocks of violent tempests. That is the work of art, sacred fire that devouring creates, shard of a shattered soul, blood of the heart. That is the idea. Oh, bard of pain, you arrive on time. Strum the lute, raise your prophetic voice, show the falsehood and misery of the greatness of the present age. Lament the harrowing secrets of that unhappy, decrepit generation, which, drowning the discomfort that devours it, is satisfied with the laughable triumphs of industry and science. You too, tribute player, tribute payer to this century, your soul and conscience are ailing. Poet of pain, you arrive on time. Singer of truth, pluck that string. Oh, great. Yeah, great poem, Poet by um, um, Adela Zamudio. Um, and the translation there from the new and selected by um, Lynette uh, Yetter here and edited by Michael Fogelman. Thanks so much for sharing that. It was a really cool uh, addition to the show today. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, once again, Lynette Yetter um, with that book of poetry. Let's uh, go next to, um, let's go to Bishwajit Mishra next. Hi, Tim, and good evening, everybody. Hey, Bishwajit, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, thanks. I was a little down, so I came in. I have to go back to this uh, show again. I do, but this time uh, I came like 20 minutes late, but was so beautiful. I mean, I had to go back and listen. Oh, great. Well, yeah, I hope you do. It was such a nice way of saying. Very, very, what you call the unpretentious Ah. way of expressing his feelings. It's really beautiful anyway. Well, thanks so much. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry, must apologize. My poem is a little long, very much unlike the poems of Tagore I'm trying to respond (laughs) to in this picture. (laughs) Uh, but I have no control over the land. <laughs> so this is a picture uh, I sent you with uh, my, my poem, the first page. Mm-hmm. Yep, I have it here, the uh, Rabindranath uh, Tagore. Rabindranath Tagore, um, 
And incidentally, after I wrote it, I found out yesterday was his birthday by Gregorian calendar. Oh, really? Perfect and, timing. And I, by Bengali almanac, it's tomorrow. So I'm in between. We are in between. <laughs> Could be better. Yeah, that's <laughs> I, perfect. Yeah. Anyway, so it's one of my favorite poems. And uh, on his second edition of his uh, book, uh, Gitanjali, which means the offering of songs, uh, the introduction was written by William Butler Yeats. Hmm. Uh, so, um, so I, before I start again, because I have used some terminology, so if it may be allowed, I can explain those. To yeah, you yeah, sure. Go ahead. So in my poem, the ones which have been emboldened, I, I address him as Guru Dev. It's one of the many ways he was uh, addressed. Mm -hmm. And it's believed that Mahatma Gandhi first called him Guru Dev. And, uh, and it's also believed that Ravindranath Tagore called Mahatma Gandhi as Mahatma for the first time. <laughs> so uh, it could mean uh, like a teacher or exact translation could be your holiness, the guru. But again, this is the this is a difficult part to translate. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, uh, and, uh, and Kavi Guru is a master poet, uh, uh, whatever you can think it. Uh, and here uh, in my poem, I've italicized some sections. So basically, I'm trying to uh, uh, respond to certain of his poems. So I picked four of them and I've given the title. He didn't have a title, so they are numbered 1, 30, 35, and 60 in his book, uh, Gitanjali, which basically led to his Nobel Prize in 1913. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, can we meet on the seashore of endless words? A letter to Ramindranath Tagore. Gurudev, I'm shorter than you, way shorter. But if I can find a little flute, more little than yours, way more little. I can carry it myself. At least I will try, earnestly. But how do I play it? Can you please help me play at least a few notes? that I can blow some tunes alone so as not to disturb anyone else. But can you also show me the place to be alone in hills or dells? You might not know, but your words have been taken literally, too literally. And our small hands still remain with ample room for the gifts that you might have viewed infinite, though they don't seem so to us and we can take more. But I can't assure you that we will ever be grateful for that, as our vessels will always have room to fill. Kavi Guru, what country did you have on mind when you called out for it to awake? Because we still keep snoring, but we are awake. At least we claim we are always watching and being washed in a global village and we just changed our glasses so that what you thought as dreary desert seemed verdant. And our mind, rather than being without fear, has become fearsome instead. And we have succeeded in making knowledge free. We have Wikipedia, Quora, and above all, Google. Yes, it'll make you happy that our head is held high, really high high to the point of aching stiff. We differ from you in holding dead habits. We'd rather make them dipper, targeting to attend 10,000 hours. Geniuses are made as such. 
we have been told by many who have watched the modern masters. Yours, she sure might have been different, but ours don't have pebbles. Hence, we have filled them with umbrellas, towels, and martinis, with samba music to go with the ravishing swimsuits, because we are no less than poor fishers. We also have mastered how to cast nets wide, and we make our children the same too, early on. So when you worried about being followed in the dark and you felt ashamed of your shadow's swagger, we have outdone you smartly because we have cracked the code to optimize under the premise. If you can't win, make it a friend. And thus, we have made our little self bigger, given it a stature it didn't have in your time. And now we let it do the work while we only fret about the banks and beaches. One worry I have though, is that the endless words you talked about have become necessary for us because we might have used most of ours too fast, too soon, but we are looking for the endless ones. See, we understand infinity like you, maybe better practically. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Bishop Jet. Really interesting. I'd love to, um, you know, I always want to read more of Tagore. I don't know a whole lot, you know, of his of his poetry. Uh, that was, can we meet on the seashore of endless worlds? And uh, not too yeah, long at all. Yeah, that's a children's play on the end of seashore. That's the, I borrowed the title. And mm-hmm. the first poem has, you pour it, and yet there is rooms to fe- room mm-hmm. to feel. Is there a, is so, there a translator that you'd recommend in English um, for Tagore? I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I can understand Bengali. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't to, read yeah. it, but I speak well and mm-hmm. I can read. Uh, but he, this is the poem he translated himself. Mm-hmm. I think it's believed that probably either Eds or Kipling, somebody convinced him to do the translation. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. so, so he did it. Actually, he converted it into English, so I, we shouldn't call it translation because the poet himself converted into another language. Excellent. And they're mostly short, mm-hmm. very short, and they're like mystical, philosophical, and spiritual kind of poem. Mm-hmm. And uh, I compare both of them. Uh, I, I compare him to Tolstoy to a great extent. Mm-hmm. They're both universalist and very modern, but uh, they live like sages. So, I mean... Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, thank thanks. you very much. Yeah, thanks so much for the insight. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Bishwajit. Uh, thank you. Have yeah. a good night. You then. too. Yeah, Bishwajit Mishra with um, Can We Meet on the Seashore of Endless Worlds? Um, and let's go next to, let's go to Dick Westheimer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing much better than you, although you have... Uh... <laughs> You have held up great. I, I was uh, um, impressed when you get into work mode. <laughs> yeah, it's not too bad. And I've even, uh, you know, with some uh, pre-warning for, for longer poems, I've got to do some cough drops, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, I'm, I'm going to read uh, one of my uh, Poets Respond poems, uh, I Pray to the Gods of Anything But America. Okay, yeah, let me pull that uh, up and, and describe what it's about okay. uh, while you start. Oh, well, you're going to get one of these a week for me. I think it's uh, it's about guns. Mm-hmm. It seems it's it seems as though you could just begin each day with with a uh, um, 
some some event with guns that are sort of prompting me to write poems these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, it's it's all over. Yeah, yeah. Th- this one is about the neighbor who uh, was asked to pipe down and mm-hmm. uh, took it uh, and killed his neighbors. Yeah, a lot of them in Texas this week uh, or the last. You know, that was Texas, wasn't it? And then um, the the mall was Texas, and the car was yeah. Texas. Yeah, a lot you of know, Texas. It's uh, there is. No, um, no venue that seems to be immune from, from this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Um, but this one's sort of particular to my own experience. So, I pray to the gods of anything but America. None of my neighbors drink anything but Bible verses. The books of Revelations, as told by pundits on TV. Not a drop of whiskey among them, but plenty of intoxication, high on kindness, and their firearms passion plays, where everyone forgets the future exists in parallel universes, ones where bullets enter the brain but do no damage to the bullet, where there is no blood or bones except in their blessings. The Christian wedding venue across the way doubles as a shooting range where guests are invited to shoulder Gary's AR-50 and blow stuff up. Gary doesn't swear, but when a concrete block shatters to dust, I hear a a guest crying, holy shit, a stunned prayer to a god who sacrificed his only sanity to the sound of cannon fire from Backyard USA. After church Sundays, Lyle takes his boy out back with the Ruger with their Ruger rimfire and damages some cans. Each afternoon in late spring, when leaves turn from pale to summer dress greens, Bill and his buddies down the way gather with their Glocks and Sigs and Hellcats. I've seen them caress those things, admire each other's grips and hammers. They sight down gleaming barrels, faces lit, parted lips in an O, each with one eye closed tight like right before climax. I don't stick around for the act. I don't like to look. I never complain to any of them about anything but the weather and only curse them in pacifists' epithets in private when I take walks in the nearby woods and am dropped by rapid-fire shots and thunder-gun cracks on clear afternoons. From my knees, I I pray to the gods of anything but 2A and the graven images of America. Pray that I make it out alive. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Dick. That was I pray to the gods of anything but the graven images of America. I think you changed the title a little bit slightly since submitting it, right? Oh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. It definitely is a topic, you know, that we never run out of uh, ammunition for. No I am, oh. <laughs> that yeah. was... I'm I mean, sure, it's I'm true. Sure, it's been, sure you're getting your your share of them, and it's, it has to be a little trauma-inducing for you to get it kind of It kind of is. I mean, every, uh, you know, it's been... Poetry's Pond is almost 10 years old. We're, we're approaching the 10-year anniversary, I think, and uh, it's been the, the probably the most common topic because there is no solution that anybody, you know, wants to propose. So so it just keeps happening. But um, but thanks for, for making poetry out of it, as always. Yeah. 
Thank yeah. you, Tim. Take care, Dick. Bye. Bye. So Dick Westheimer with I Pray to the Gods. Um, next up, let's go to uh, Katie Dozier. <clears throat> Hey, Tim. Hey, Katie. How are you doing? I'm Holding good. up. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing all right. We're making it through. How are you doing? Great. So my email, David Kirby is one of my favorite poets, so I was pretty excited. He had the PR poem this week. It was fun to hear him read that, too. Yeah, it was. And uh, and we didn't have the audio, I should say, because of a glitch. And uh, Submittable didn't send me his email with audio. So now we have it. So if anybody wants wants to uh read it on the website they can or listen to him read it on the website they can do that too but yeah great poem is always from uh from david so uh, what is it that you want to share this week hi i did the prompt poem mm-hmm. i feel like i don't know if a hyphen counts as like a letter to the person sure the you can you can, but, uh, uh, you can hyphen a letter that's a that's part of the tradition of hyphen i think so this is this is based on the photo get, photographs by Moibridge. So I incorporated, I think in the version I sent you, mm-hmm. one of these like stop motion photographs, uh, like the, you know, he does the grid, which people have probably seen. And so I watched the Kentucky Derby and I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about everybody talks about the horse. They don't talk about the jockey. And it felt kind of bad <laughs> for the jockey. So I decided to write it for him. Oh, that's I think that's it was, like, so interesting. You know, I've seen that Weebridge photo so many times I've never noticed the jockey. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. yeah, come on, notice the jockey. So this one's for the jockey, even though you could argue that by the end of the poem, I'm not even talking to him. So maybe I'm just doing what everybody else has done to this poor guy. But at least the poem is to him. So he gets some amount of credit, I could say. <clears throat> so this is called Horse in Motion Hyben to G. Dom as photographed by E. Moybridge. Perhaps you're the person behind the phrase jockeying for attention because I raced to Google your identity, a lone silhouette atop a thoroughbred. They used to think horses stretched out mid-jump. Legs could be a kind of furry magic carpet. Soles were tassels ringed with luck. It's Kentucky Derby Day again. A man in red coattails plays the bugle. Hats become birds, almost swallow people. A mint julep muddled sky. How they train the camera to ride a drone, shudder, and then fly along beside. White stripes down the dark furlong, a blazing star. Uh, very cool. Yeah, the Kentucky Derby is always interesting. So it's a poet respond poem too. Horse in motion, Hyven. Thanks for sharing <laughs> that, Katie. And and Katie and I, of course, do the poetry space on Twitter. If anybody wants to join that on Thursday at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern. The topic for this week is news poems. We're going to talk about writing poems about the news. Just an hour of a uh, casual chat, and then it becomes a podcast. So it's one of the three things that we kind of do around with Rattle. So, um, Katie, thanks so much for being here, and uh, looking forward to Thursday, too. Thanks. Hope you feel better soon, especially by Thursday, because it's all audio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's a, there's a mute button there, too, so I think we'll be bailed out by that. Yeah, great. Thank <laughs> you. Right. Yep. See you later. Bye. 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 That was uh, Katie Dozier once again with a Horse in Motion Hyven. We had a poem about We Bridge, too, uh, back in Rattle. I don't know what issue, about issue around 50 or something. Um. Really, and that, those were the photos of um, you know, capturing the motion where they catch the horse being completely in, in midair, of course. Um, next up, let's go to uh, Carla Schwartz. Hey, Carla, are you there? 
Oh, I think you're like muted or something. Your your camera. Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah, there you go. Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> no sorry. problem. Hey, Carla. Extra button. Extra mute button on yeah. my mic. So. Slightly okay. separate knob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. All right. I'm very happy to be here. What a great night of poetry so far. And I did a prompt poem. Uh huh. And the photo is just after the poem. Okay, I'll put it up for and, everybody. And um, so this is a picture of my grandmother. Oh. Okay. Yeah. When she was like, you know, sixteen, mm -hmm. and uh, and it's very theatrical. She's very, you know, dressed up, kind of yeah, theater like. With, yeah, theater kind of dress and then balls, uh, you know, like pom pom type puff balls around the dress yeah, for people watching right. at home. Yeah. Right. Okay, so this is called Not Merely a Player on This World's Stage. All you have to do is stand still, pretty girl, and all the boys will flock to you. Brush out your horsetail locks, lace your long slender legs into leather boots made just for you. But you know, you are not just a pretty girl, all pom-pommed and posed, clothed and painted whiter than a rose. Rest your chin on your thumb, convey the strategic thinker you'll become. Today in 1914, you have everything. Your stage, so small on this brink of war, no inkling of that next one, Nazis knocking at your door, and that you'll lose all this and more. Be poised, strong. Can you really pretend nothing can go wrong? Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I was on mute from the cough. But anyway, it was a great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. I should say, I'll just say it again. I love the turn of that poem. It was very shocking. And, uh, and I love the rhyme, too. Yeah, so thanks, Carla. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, that's the danger of muting constantly. All right, let's go next to um, Guy Chambers. Hey, Tim. How's it going? Good. How are you doing tonight, Guy? Oh, really good. I just want I don't know if you got the picture that I got my poem published on. I don't know if I got the picture there. I don't know if you can show it or not. Yeah, I got well, beautiful what sunset on the ocean. We have a, a boat, yeah. a sailboat, uh, and a palm tree, and uh, a beautiful sunset here on the screen right now. Yeah, because yeah. I'm with uh, Parkland Poets, and what they did uh, last year is uh, they got some photographers get together with the summers of poetry, and, and what happened, I uh, put my name in there, so I got uh, one photographer give me uh, some four uh, pictures and then we had to write poems about it. And actually, these were uh, in, in, in Stony Plain, Alberta. They put it up in a gallery for quite a while, hanging in a gallery. So so this is what it came out with the poem. With that poem, There's, I thought it was a really good picture. It just took me right, right off the bat. So I got to do a write a poem about this. It's called Eventide. Eventide. Distant sailor delight. Prayer of the night. Even tide, still and calm. Soothed whisper in the blooming clouds, giving warmth of life to the twilight. Romantic skies, 
for angel eyes. Sailboat, peacefully anchored to the arm of the sea, graceful sigh, resting for the night, mass high and tight to the brief while. Hush, shoreline, to the passion skyline, pledge harmony on the coming day. Hey, beautiful poem, beautiful photo. Thanks for sharing that, guy. Yeah, I guess they say you have to only do 30 lines and that's so kind of compact. I thought it was mm-hmm. just powerful. Thing. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thanks so much. Right. Yep, that was Eventide by Guy Chambers. And uh, uh, Mustafa Sarwar is up next. Oh, you're still... Yep, there you go. Oh, I uh, unmuted myself. Yeah, Thank how are you, you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Like, uh, if you look in, in my background, mm-hmm. on the left-hand side, the first two rows are all Tagore's books. Ah, wow. It works. Oh, cool. And uh, it was like, uh, to, uh, we call it 25th of Boisak mm-hmm. when he was born. And uh, I will start with two lines of him. Okay. Because I speak in Bangla. That's my oh. main language. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's English great. Which is my second language. Shundharage jhili mili, jhilamer srotokhani baka, adhare molin holo, jano khape dhaka baka toloar. I just read two lines of his uh, Anyhow, uh, I, I, first I would like to give you a good news. I wrote a poem in Bangla, which was published four days ago. Oh, excellent. It's a very political slogan. It says, I would like to chop the head of the money tree. Ah. It is my protest against the corruption mm-hmm. in, in Bangladesh, uh, now prevailing in the government in particular. It became viral now. It got everywhere. Like uh, already, like is like about twenty thousand. Oh wow! Congratulations! Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's yeah it's and a, a corollary one also today. One editor requested and I sent it. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, now I'll be talking about uh, uh, the poem which I wrote. Again, a good news. I completed seventy pages, just the text, book text of a book of poem on Ukraine. Mm-hmm. This will be per- perhaps the first bo- book of poems by a non-Ukrainian hmm. ethnical writing a complete full book. Uh, you know, I'll, I I sent it to my son, who is a Harvard creative writing mm-hmm. fellow. I sent it to him to uh, review, and then I'll just go for looking for a, you know, somebody to publish it. Yeah, now, good job. <clears throat> my poem, it is on Ukraine, Bakhmut, Death's Despair. This is a poet's response. Major Uliana Sozanaska, once a musician, fighting death's despair. Inside Bakhmut's deadly bunker, like a hungry beast, death's sharp carbonate teeth pierced through the body of her brother. She knows death multiplies in the wilderness, wrecked concrete jungle of Bakhmut. Bullets, after killing, grew into machinels, kind of bullet trees, poison guafas, scattered seeds, grew into more poison trees, more fruits. Could be rumor, Wagner mercenaries, carnivores of human flesh, mixing blood 
with the seeds of bullet trees. Chechnyan killers, like Neanderthal beasts, winter migratory, bullet seeds, delicacy supreme, dystopia's insane entree. Bakhmuth, depraved graveyard, concrete wilderness, broken, smashed, scattered, only poison seeds multiply. Major Uliana Sozanaska, once a musician, now fighting, death's despair, inside Bakhmut's deadly bunker, like a hungry beast, death's sharp carbonate teeth pierced through the body of her brother. Yeah, excellent ending. Thanks so much for sharing that, uh, Mustafa. That was an excellent poem. Thank you. Yeah, and congratulations on the viral one, too. That was interesting. Is there anywhere we can find that? Um, it, it's in oh, yes, Bengali, the, right? Yeah, no, no, no. But the funny, but very interesting, the, when they published it, mm -hmm. already they translated into English version, mm -hmm. both reading, both in Bangla and English, mm -hmm. and also the English version is right there. Oh, great, great. So yeah, how, where do we find it? Just Google your name, it'll come up? Uh, oh, yeah. Google my name. Mm -hmm. uh, you do it in uh, Bengali. In English, it might come mm -hmm. because I wrote it in Bangla. Uh -huh. But I can uh, send you my Bangla name. Okay. Yeah, sure. If you Google my Bangla name, you will say like at least uh, uh, 500 listings. Mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you know, English name will be almost close mm -hmm. uh, because I do a lot of other things. Gotcha. I was the vice chancellor. Mm -hmm. I was the commissioner of the regional transit authority. I was the provost. So, you know, a lot of things I have done. Mm -hmm. So they are in the news all the time. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Well, thanks so much. I'm looking forward to finding that and, and giving that a read. Yeah, too. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to send it to you, uh -huh. to your email address. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Please do. Promise. Okay. Thanks. And I would like to translate one of your poems. Ah, okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to. If you to. permit it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Oh, yes. <laughs> that love poem. Mm -hmm. Ah. Where you used a metaphor which I never can even imagine. Hmm. That double uh double-aged uh, tapes <laughs> you remember yeah i do yeah mm -hmm. that's your love poem and i, I would like to uh, you know publish that you know i all, all i translated i'm reviewing mm -hmm. it yeah but i can publish it right away and then it will be also like uh, you can see it there. sure yeah that'd be cool thanks so much but i want your permission mm -hmm. yeah. because without permission editor is not going to accept it mm -hmm. gotcha yeah okay yeah we'll do just email me that and uh, and i'll yeah for for sure thanks a lot Okay, thank okay, you. Okay, sure. Bye. Yeah, that was, um, once again, uh, Mustafa Sarwar with um, Bakhmut, Death's Despair. So very interesting. And we'll pass that, uh, that other poem of his along as well. Um, next up, we have two poets left in the uh, chat, in the, uh, in the Zoom. Tanish Carr is next. Hi, Tim. Hi, Tanish. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. Let's see if it'll work. Can you see me? I, we can't see you, but we hear you fine. There you are, it just took a while to pop on. Yeah, good to see you. Good to see you too. Uh, so I just have this one, um, I've been dealing with memory a lot and um, also like how to talk about trauma without exploiting myself and um, you know, what I, what I went through. Um, so this is um, this new style I'm working on prose poetry or like, I don't know if it would be called memoir in verse or something mm -hmm. like that. It's just one small section. Um, and I think I gave you a photo. Yeah, I have it up on screen right now. And this is the photo That's of your mother. Yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, that must have been in the mid-50s, I guess. Mm -hmm. And she passed when I was seven. Oh, um, I'm sorry to hear that. 
Thank you. That was like a, in '91. So, um, so I'll just I'll just read it. Um, yeah, go ahead. When my mom was alive, I had always been hurt by her, and I realize now it was because my dad, what he did, and what they decided to do to cut my clitoris, the aftermath of all of that, and I didn't really want friends. I clung to her, so she wouldn't one day. So she went one day and introduced herself to the mom of the new girl by the corner near the main road. And there was another girl, a little older, in the house next to her, and she made me play with her, and I was happy. We used to play roller skates in my basement, which was unfinished. We'd draw chalk courses to follow, and we'd sometimes ride bikes also. And at her house, it was awesome because she could get the Disney Channel, which we didn't have. And I still remember the theme song to Roundhouse. But after Mom, I, well, the fight started, and it wasn't fun anymore, but we still played, but her mom talked to me about the fights once and in the fourth grade. I stopped going over there. I thought it was about religion. And we were so different, but deep down I felt so different. I felt so different because my mom was gone and blocked out all the abuse, but still felt different from that. I just felt too different to, to be anyone's friend. Oh, very touching. Thanks for sharing that. An important poem to get down and an important project to be working on, I think it sounds like. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Tanish. That was Tanish Carr with um, with a prose poem after uh, a photograph of her mother, which uh, if you're only listening, you can watch, you can look on uh, on YouTube to find. So that is the rattlecast for today. Let me do the Saiku really quickly, um, and the Saiku was based on this story from Smithsonian Magazine, is where I saw it. Um. It was right here, and unfortunately, Smithsonian Magazine has a lot of pop-ups. So let me delete the pop-ups. I don't want that. I don't want that. Okay. So here is uh, Smithsonian Magazine. Here is the story that caught my eye while I was in the uh, the airport waiting for a plane. Surging brain activity in dying people may be a sign of near-death experiences. Researchers found that two of four comatose patients had brain waves that resembled a consciousness. Um, after they were taken off life support. So what, what happened is they um, got permission for four people who were um, you know, in comas and, and dying and, and not recoverable, and they got permission from the families to put them in an MRI machine to see what was happening while, um, while they were dying, while they pulled the plug. And they found that um, two of the four, at least, which kind of makes sense because not everybody reports near-death experiences, but two of the four had a sudden burst of... Uh, neurological activity in a region of the brain known for consciousness. So um, that is basically it. They're, they're uh, cardiac arrest survivors who uh, had to be taken off life support. So uh, very interesting in the uh, topic of um, potential near-death experiences, I guess you could say. Um, and here is my Saiku based on that uh, little story. Final thought before sleep, the porch light. Final thought before sleep, the porch light that is the psycho for the week and that is the show for the week thanks everybody for joining me next week's uh, prompt inspired by michael favala goldman as you can imagine is this uh, pick a poem written in a language you don't speak translate the poem into english without looking up any of the words and that translate is in quotation marks so um there's an important component of the prompt um you don't actually have to make it accurate i don't want you to 
I want you to uh, pretend to translate, give it your own meaning, but use the sounds of the, the language and uh, the poem in another language to inspire you. And that is the uh, prompt for this week or next week. And next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be ooh, ah Frank Dolligan is the guest. Frank was the interviewee for our Irish Poets issue, so be uh, be ready, prepared for a wonderful accent. Um, Frank is uh, also has a new book, In the Coming of Winter, that's his most recent. He's going to read poems from there. Note the special time, because he's in Ireland, or actually he's in the UK, he moved out of there a while ago, but um, because he's in Ireland, or in the UK, I should say, um, it's going to be 12 p.m. Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific. This is the early time that we do for people who uh, the regular time doesn't work. So we're shifting it back um, by about eight hours, or actually exactly eight hours, to noon Eastern Time. That's next week, Monday, May 15th, Rattlecast number 194, with that prompt to translate a poem into English, even though you don't know how to do it, speak that language. That is your uh, show for the week. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. It's been a lot of fun, um, and I hope you have a great week in the meantime. I'll talk to you later. Good night.